Hello, hello, everyone. Um, for those of you that are new here, thanks for joining us. Uh, for those who are previous listeners, welcome back and welcome to season three. So new intro music. Hopefully you all dig it as much as I do. I think it captures the energy of this show uh, pretty darn well. Um, thank you to the athlete of mine that actually got that for me and for this show. So season three, pretty excited for this. This season I am bringing on both coaches and their athletes to dive into what the athletes have been through and then how the coaches have been there to help them through those obstacles. Through this season, I'm looking to promote the power of a coach-athlete relationship and how both athletes and coaches can use this to better themselves. During the season, I'm going to have on top-level athletes as well as athletes that have just learned to love the bike and have found new strength in doing so. This first episode is actually the first of a series of three I have done highlighting the unique program and mission of Project Echelon. Project Echelon is both a domestic elite cycling team that I direct for, as well as a non-for-profit that supports veterans and provides um, guidance and support to those veterans through cycling and the bike. Uh, One of the many cool parts of the program is they actually empower each rider on the elite team to coach a veteran. So this gives the veterans knowledge and support in a new path, while also giving the elite athlete a career path off the bike. Um, So for these three interviews, I am joined by both a veteran and their elite racer coach. Um, I ask each pair five questions and dive into what the program and coaching relationship means to them, as well as what cycling has done for them as a new path and mission. My first episode is with an amazing soul. His name's Brad Borders and uh, elite racer and coach, Zach Gregg. Brad has some pretty, you know, truly empowering stories and also does some amazing work for his non-for-profit, Purple Heart Homes. If you are able, please consider donating to Purple Heart Homes and Project Echelon to help both of these amazing causes. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. And without further ado, enjoy episode one of season three, and my chat with Brad and Zach. All right, we are rolling. Okay, let's get started. So I would like each of you, if you don't mind, to introduce yourself and then give me a little bit of a background on who you both are. So um, with me today, I have um, Brad Borders and Zach Gregg. And I would, um, so Brad, let's start with you. Yeah, cool. So yeah, I'm I'm Brad Borders. I uh, am 55 years old. <laughs> so um, I um, I live in uh, Statesville, North Carolina. Uh, currently, I serve as the vice president of outreach for a nonprofit called Purple Heart Homes, cool. and we um, we do uh, critical home repair for disabled veterans. Um, I served. I've served as of today. Um, I served, I've served 18 years in the United States Army Reserves. I served 10 years on active duty and my role in the Army was as a chaplain. And um, I served in the, uh, on the active duty side, I served in the civil affairs world and the the special forces world as a chaplain. And I've deployed uh, to Iraq 
And uh, so that's my, my combat experience. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's like, um, and I've been married for 30 years to the same woman, to my first wife. All right. And uh, I don't have a second one. I've got two grown children that are awesome and uh, out of my house. And uh, it's great when they come to visit. Awesome. <laughs> nice. Great. I, yeah, that was well said. And just in general, I, it's always funny when you ask somebody kind of like a snippet of their life story. Um, if you give them, you know, a paragraph to write it, what they end up saying. So um, I think that, yeah, it's, it tells us a bit about you. So that's great. So what my first question for you, um, since that was not question number one, is what inspired you to join the military to begin with? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an easy one, man. Uh, so uh, I, I grew up uh, in a household with a, a Navy veteran. Uh, my dad uh, was uh, served in the Navy, and we um, were always taught to uh, respect and, and uh, honor those who had, you know, raised their right hand and served. And, and I always wanted to serve as a kid, and things didn't work out for me um, through, um, you know, my college years to do that. Um, I went on into another career um, and then went, uh, you know, in the mid-90s, uh, I went into ministry. Um, at, I had... Uh, I guess what you would call spiritual epiphany and went into ministry as a, as a pastor. And, uh, and then, um, um, when nine 11 happened, um, I saw the towers fall, uh, while I was, um, uh, doing some remodeling for, for a customer that I, I was doing, I had a remodeling business and saw the towers fall and, and, uh, you know, all the stuff that happened after that, um, just kind of uh, coalesced into uh, me having some sleepless nights about, um, you know, what my role is as far as being a, a citizen and uh, found myself at a recruiter's office. At the time, I was uh, 37 years old. I was too old to uh, join uh, as an infantryman, which is what I wanted to do. Um, but they uh, the recruiters were like, hey, we got other jobs for old guys like you. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, what's that? And they were like, well, you can be a chaplain. And I was like, well, what's that? And they were like, well, it's sort of like a pastor for soldiers. And I was like, well, I'm already doing that. So um, and, 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 you know, long story short, I, I ended up um, uh, joining as a, as a direct commission as a chaplain. And so I've been doing that for the last 18 years off and on. So um, so it was really 9-11 that that um, that uh, spurred uh, my, in, you know, in family background that, that spurred my uh, entry into the military. Did that was that something that took a lot of, I guess, changing from being a pastor over to being, you know, chaplain? Did that change a lot? With uh, Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, just from a family dynamic, you know, you're uh, I had two, uh, my, my, my grown kids at the time were, were small kids. And I, you know, had, uh, had a wife who uh, was uh, convinced if I joined the army, I was going to die the day after I left, you know? And uh, so, um, yeah, it was, it was a significant change, but, but it was a change that, that was for the good. And now, you know, uh, almost two decades later, I look back and, and, um, um, it, it was a change that um, uh, cha it changed the course of our lives as, as far as what we were doing and, and where we were going and then uh, relationships and friendships and, and then, uh, you know, and all the good and the bad, the time away, the, the decade that I spent either mobilized or deployed overseas, um, um, you know, was both uh, challenging for, for our family, but 
but also growth periods as well, where we learned, uh, you know, how to survive and and um, how to adapt and overcome uh, um, the the challenges of being um, deployed and immobilized away from home. So yeah, I was pretty proud of my wife for what she did for sure. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, that's yeah. that is a hard hard for anyone. So that that's actually a great segue into my next question. My next question is, and you can go as far into this one as you want. Um, what is the hardest thing you've had to work through during your service so through your experience serving, which is, you know, pretty extensive? What is the hardest thing you've had to experience during all of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there, there's a lot of difficult things, I, I guess. Um, when you ask that question, there's a lot of um, the first thing that comes to mind are a lot of names. Um, uh, serving in the special operations world, you know, you get uh, it's a very tight community. And then but it's also a, a community that's on the tip of the spear uh, when it when it came to counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so um, uh, I have a lot of I have a lot of friends that I that I officiated funerals for and, and memorials for. And, and so um, just the just the amount of loss that uh, our unit went through. Um, now, I served at 3rd Special Forces Group, and it's, it's a very uh, dear place to me with some very dear friends. And, and the amount of loss per capita is, is very high uh, in that unit. And so um, I guess just the pain of, of watching folks suffer um, uh, pain of, of um, I, I guess what, what, what we would typically call in the, in the caregiving world is kind of walking through the tobacco field. Um, where I'm from North Carolina and tobacco is a, is a big crop here and, and folks that worked in tobacco fields understand that when you, when you walk through the tobacco field and you're not protected from it, um, the the uh, the nicotine get gets on you and in your skin just through touching the leaf, and um, uh, it's similar when you walk through um, uh, trauma and uh, uh, adversity uh, in a unit that does so much work um, on a you know on a combat scale that um, it you you tend to absorb that stuff and um, I, I didn't realize how much I was absorbing over the years that I served there until, until kind of really after I got out and I started helping other uh, veterans kind of recover from their, from the trauma that they had experienced uh, in their time in service. And I realized that, you know, all the stuff that I went through had had a, had a profound impact on me. And so um, even as a, uh, even as a chaplain, um, just kind of absorbing all of that and absorbing all the pain and, and the grief that that goes along with loss um, has an effect on you, and, and uh, um, you know, you you kind of you kind of get to a point where you're like, hey man, I, I got to recover from all of this stuff. You know, we all need we all need recovery periods from things like that. You know, because as a, as a chaplain, you're always on you're always on point, and you're always in caregiving mode, and you, and there's rarely uh, a time where anyone asks the chaplain, uh, hey, um, are, are you okay? Right. You know, it's, it's yeah. always, it's always, it's, you're always getting a call when there's a crisis. And, and, um, and so um, I spent, I spent the better part of two decades uh, trying to figure out how to help other people and, and then didn't, and then didn't realize what it had done to me. Yeah. 
did you find that your, I guess, first question, what was, do you feel, what was your primary mission? Um, or what is your primary mission? Um, during your service? Like, what is, what do you feel? Yeah, as far, like yeah, yeah. yeah as, as far as in the military, I mean, I guess you could say the doctrinal, um, uh, the doctrinal mission of, of the chaplain is to, uh, um, you know, perform and uh, provide uh, religious support um, to soldiers and their families that are within that unit. That's the, that's the, that's the doctrinal answer. Um, and um, at, at, the, at the human level is, is, I guess, what we would call ministry of presence, uh, which is um, to be present with the, uh, to be a person of presence who, who represents um, uh, the, you know, the God that we serve uh, in the midst of chaos. Um, and, um, you know, I can, I can relate that to a, a, just a quick story when I was in a, a combat environment and there was a, a catastrophic event where, where there was a, um, an, a, a, a V bid, a, a v, not a, 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 a guy had a, a suicide vest on and, and, and it exploded in a market outside of Tikrit, uh, in Iraq. And, and there were multiple casualties. It's a really long story, but there were multiple casualties coming into our combat surgical hospital over there. And, and I was covering down on the hospital because their chaplain at the time was, was having to be somewhere else. And I just remember the chaos and, you know, 30 some civilian, uh, you know, there were just Iraqi civilians that were wounded and injured and catastrophic injuries. You know, you can, you just, you can imagine what it looked like. And, um, I remember feeling uh, completely out of place and, and completely useless. Like I was just taking up good air and just kind of walking around and putting my hand on, on doctors' backs and nurses' backs and just telling them they were doing a great job and, and uh, praying for the patients. Uh, and then finally, after a few hours, everything ratcheted down and, uh, and our, our medical staff did an incredible job. And, and, and not one of those civilians died that night because of the care they received. And I remember at the end of it, there was like, um, um, I, w I was feeling like a waste of space and, and there was some, there was some blood on the floor and, and I just, I just found some rags and I just started cleaning it up and I was down on my knees and, and this young nurse came and put her hand on my shoulder and, and, uh, I looked up and I was like, Hey, how you doing? And, and she was like, I I'm good. And she said, Hey, we were all just over there and just wanted to let you know how thankful you were that we were, that you were here tonight, uh, because, because it let us know that, that God was with us in a very trying time. And I, and I was just like, you know, I, 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 for the, for the three hours I was there, four hours I was there, I felt completely useless, but that was what, that's what ministry of presence does is, is that just that visible presence of, of, of the, um, the impact of, of what the, um, the representation of God almighty can do um, in, in a group of people when they're, when they're undergoing a traumatic event. And uh, so that, that is really, that's the hallmark of what chaplains do in the military is, is, is bring a visible representation of the spiritual. Um, so I, I apologize for waxing on about that, but no, uh, no, 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 not, not at all. That's the best way I can explain that. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that in a moment like that, that goes so far and that can't be, you know, understated. So um yeah, no, I, I really, really appreciate that story. I think that is re remarkable um, and remarkable that you were there. Um, so 
this is hard to transition away from a story like that, but it's, um, I did want to then transition to kind of the sporting world for you. Um, and, uh, you know, most of my listeners coming are coming from the sporting background and, um, this, so I, I wanted to know next then, how did you find, um, the bike and how did that come to you? And, and, uh, yeah, how, how did that enter your life? That's a great story. Uh, um, so I found the bike and, and, uh, in 1971, uh, when my dad bought me my first Schwinn and, uh, and then I, uh, I, I mowed grass, uh, when I was 10 years old to buy my first Schwinn varsity in 1976, I bought yeah. a Schwinn varsity bicentennial edition, uh, with, uh, for, for, uh, $69. <laughs> Uh, at Riddle's cycle cycle shop in Statesville, North Carolina, uh, I saved every single penny, and we rode. And this and the bike, the bike, the bicycle gave us freedom, because uh, as, as a as a ten year old kid, and you got a bike, man, you could you could go wherever, you know, you could go as far as your legs would take you. And uh, and that led me into, you know, I was a I was an athlete in high school, um, uh, played uh, uh, played a year of college football, um, um, discovered. Uh, um, the, the world of, uh, triathlons, uh, in the early nineties. And, um, and then, man, I quit riding my bike, man. It was so dumb, right? It was like the dumbest thing I've ever done. And, um, uh, when I turned almost 50 years old, a friend of mine in the army, um, had just gotten promoted to, uh, uh, full bird colonel. He was giving himself a gift of, of a new, uh, Trek Madone. Uh, for his uh, promotion nice. and he had an old like an old trek sl2 uh, aluminum frame with some carbon forks on it has some pretty good components like some you know some ultegra stuff on it and he was like hey man i want to give you this bike he and i served together at, at, at third special forces group and we went through a lot of tough times together and and uh, he said i'm going to give you this bike the only caveat is is that you got to come ride with me and uh, I was like, hey, no problem, man. I'll get back on that thing. I'd been big into CrossFit and I thought I thought I could do anything in the world. And then and then I got on the bike and went and rode with him. And he he ripped my legs completely off the first day. And uh, it was uh, it was a very humbling experience. But I I refell in love with with riding a bike. Um, and uh, I guess the first year. I guess if you go, of course, everybody measures everything by Strava these days, right? You know, so yeah, right. I guess you can go back to 2015, 2014 was when I first started recording on Strava and, you know, maybe 1500 miles that year. And, and, uh, the mileage generally increased. And then, uh, you know, so last year I was up around, uh, you know, 7,000 miles and, and, uh, and doing a lot of stupid, stupid events, right. Riding a long way. And, and just having a great time doing it. So uh, um, it's been a love affair that I've had with uh, with bicycles since since I was really five years old. Awesome, so. awesome. I guess the next step then is how did you get involved with Project Echelon? How did that come about? So that that's a cool story. Um, last year, so the nonprofit that I work for uh, with Purple Heart Homes, um, you know, with COVID hitting out last year, fundraising is the name of the game in nonprofits and. Uh, our normal um, fundraising um, events were all canceled. We just couldn't do anything. And I saw, I saw on YouTube where uh, Phil Guyman was doing this Everesting thing, 
And I was like, you know what, we could do something like that. I'm not, you know, you know I'm, I'm at the time I was 54. I was like, I'm not going to Everest in a day, but man, we could, we could do, let's do a hill climb thing. So I, I started, uh, you know, socializing that with, uh, with some friends of mine that rode here and they were like, yeah, man, let's do it, man. And I thought, you know, maybe we could raise a thousand bucks or something, you know, it'd be great. And so we started planning this event and, and, you know, this one day I just, I just jumped on the computer and I Googled um, veteran bicycle racing. I mean, that was, that was, I literally just kind of typed it in. And the first thing that popped up was Project Echelon. And so I got on their website and started looking through it. I was like, wow, this is so cool. They have a no kidding, you know, domestic elite pro racing team that all they do is, is promote veterans causes. So I, um, I found out, you know, I, I reached out to Eric Hill. Um, we did a conference call and um, Eric uh, and I became friends over that conference call. We've never met in person because of COVID, but uh, yeah. uh, we, we became friends. And, uh, and so we put together this event called Take That Hill um, in October of 2020, where we did 10,000 feet of elevation gain on a two mile stretch of road in Alexander County, North Carolina on a place called Barrett Mountain. And, um, and so, uh, and, and the reason we chose 10,000 feet was because, you know, all of my friends who fought in Afghanistan, all the mountains over there in the Kush region and, and the you know, Tora Bora area, those are all 10,000 foot peaks. And I just selected that number just because it was a round number. And, and so we rode this event and we gathered, we, we put this event together and I had 10 riders. It was just some friends of mine, some other veterans that lived here in North Carolina. And then, you know, in Eric, when Eric and I had this conversation, Eric's like, Hey man, we're going to sponsor that event. And not only that, I'm going to send, I'm going to send four riders to come ride with you. And I was yeah. like, you're going to send four pro riders. Come ride? We're all old, man. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, oh my gosh. And so Steve Vogel and, you know, Frank Cundiff and Mallory McCrosty and, and Joe Carpasisi came and, uh, and, and they, I was so impressed. I mean, they just smashed that hill and it, it was so cool. We had such a great day. And, and, uh, and, and so I immediately, I was like, I am all in on what Project Echelon is doing. So I affiliated with Project Echelon and I guess that means you're just, you're a veteran and you, and you, you know, you do stuff on social media and I, I got a Jersey, right. So I guess I'm all yeah. sort of, I'm kind of on the team now, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool to be included in something like that. And, you know, I know I'll never ride with a guy like Steven Bogle and, and keep up with him, but, uh, but Holy cow, it's, it's neat to be in that community. And, and so, um, and that was really, um, you know, it, I began training a little more seriously over the winter through the echelon racing series. I started, I started racing online on RGT and, you know, I've never done, a, I've never done a race before. I've never raced in anything and, and got in a race. And well, I went, I went in a cap four race and I ended up, I ended up winning, right? I ended up winning this race. Yeah. That's awesome. It's like, wait, wait, hold on, wait a minute. Maybe, you know, maybe my life's not over. <laughs> you know, And so, um, and that, and that led me to, um, I, 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 of course I used, I was using training peaks and buying some training programs. I, I became kind of a, I don't know, I kind of geeked out and nerded out over numbers and 
you know, power meters and, you know, heart rate and stuff. And I was like, man, I, I, maybe I should, maybe I should look into coaching. And, and that was kind of what led me to ask Eric. And, and I talked, I, I, what led me to it was Zach Nair, uh, one of Zach Nair's articles on, on, um, on power numbers and some Zwift race where, you know, people were doing ludicrous numbers. And I was like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm an old guy, but I, I'd like to train like that. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to learn how to do that. And that was kind of how I got whole, I got fully connected in and that, and that's what got me connected with Zach Gregg and, and uh, uh, kind of developing a training program for me. So, which is pretty neat, the whole story. Yeah. yeah that, that, that's awesome. Um, so final question for you. And this one's, um, this one's a fun one. What has working with Zach as a coach um, done for you? Yeah. Um, so what did, so Zach and I, we, we've really only been working together for about six weeks now. I think Zach, I mean, you can, you can, uh, um, but I, I, I will tell you this, what it's done for me is, you know, Zach's been really cool about, and the last thing I ever want to do is bother somebody. And I know, and, and for those that don't know, those that are listening, Zach coaches a bunch of folks, um, not only, not only veterans, but he's, he's, he's coaching other pro riders. And, and so, you know, man, I never, uh, and what he does for us as veterans is, is the value of what, what Project Echelon gives us. And we're, we're not charged for this. It, it, it's, a, it's a service that's given to us. And, and we know, we all know the value of it. I mean, all you got to do is go on training peaks and, or, or one of the other trainer road and try to find a coach and how much that costs uh, to get that service done. And so, the last thing I ever want to do was bug Zach, but man, he's been so responsive and, you know, I'm, I'm texting him and I'm like, Hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to win this race this weekend or, you know, and, and I've got this, I've got an event coming up and, and, uh, in a week, uh, where, uh, and Zach, you don't know this, man, I got injured last weekend, um, uh, on a, on a training ride. And, and so I've got, a, I've got a 200 mile, uh, fundraising event I'm doing next Saturday that I'm leading. And we're riding 200 miles in a day. And so, um, Zach, I haven't told Zach about this yet. So I'm just now breaking this to my coach. But, but Zach has been super responsive. He's helped me um, develop a, a training program for this event that I was training for. And, and then I went out and did something stupid. Uh, and I put some pedal extenders on my cranks to try to alleviate some back pain. I end up injuring my knee. And so, <laughs> so I should have. So, you know, this is. I should have asked him before I did that, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but I'm, but I'm better now. I, I took three days of rest, so you just so you'll know I'm not being a moron about it. And uh, <laughs> but um, it, it's been it's been great. And Zach, you know, it, it's funny. Zach is you know Zach's up at Lee's McCray. I'm a, I'm a Lee's McCray alumni, although I went to school at Lee's McCray uh, back before they even knew what bicycles were. You know, back in the early '80s, and so. Uh, he he's at my alma mater, uh, coaching uh, coaching their cycling team, and and it's yeah. been really cool getting to know him. So cool. Um, I guess Zach, any comments on the on the injury? <laughs> Man, that's brutal. <laughs> this is like the worst way to find out, too. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, like man. Oh, well, I didn't want to bug you. You were at training camp, and I didn't I didn't want to bug you. You know, and um, well, I always I've have time to... for uh, fixing injuries like a week out from your goal event you know like that's that's pretty important (laughs) 
Well, hey, I thought I had, I, I, I literally thought I had torn my meniscus because I was having some severe pain in the back of my knee and, and I've had two ACL reconstructions on that knee. And uh, luckily um, I've got, I've got some really good friends from the uh, special operations world that were uh, physical therapists. And, and we, uh, we did some, we did some conference calls and, and we, and we figured out that it's probably not that. And, and I'm, luckily I'm, I'm feeling better. I actually did get back on the bike yesterday for about 30 minutes and felt good. And I've got a, I've got a ride planned tomorrow. Oh, and by the way, I'm taking those, uh, those pedal extensions off uh, first thing in the morning. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. What a dopey yeah. move, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, change the whole setup of your bike uh, two weeks before yeah, a 200 no. mile ride. <laughs> Gosh. Well, it, it makes me feel any better. I had an, uh, an athlete message me that they broke their arm skateboarding like a little. Yeah. So it, it, right. you know, we yeah. all do, we all do fun things sometimes happens, and it can result. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to transition now to Zach, which I, I realized I, I skipped introducing you or having wow. you introduce yourself. So Zach, introduce yourself, please. Okay. <laughs> um, so my name is Zach Gregg. I'm the head of veteran onboarding and coaching with Project Echelon. Um, I'm the assistant cycling coach at Lees McRae College, um, and I race for the Project Echelon racing team. Um, I'm from Roanoke, Virginia. I live in Banner Elk, North Carolina, which is uh, not too far away uh, from where Brad lives. Uh, up in the high country, it's beautiful. Uh, really fun place to ride and, and coach and hang out with all these incredible collegiate athletes. Yeah. It's uh, it's been funny talking to Zach this week because when I went to Marion, it was like Lisa McRae was basically our biggest rival and competitor. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's hard to let it go. <laughs> um, but so Zach is is obviously like a really a, a great you know tool within our organization within the Project Echelon organization. Um, so away from kind of like your coaching outside of Project Echelon. What has you, um, had you ever worked with a, a veteran before um, working with Brad? Um, yes, I have. So I actually um, went and did my master's at Midwestern State University in exercise physiology. Um, and we worked with uh, mainly active duty EOD um, at Shepherd Air Force Base, where, uh, yeah, we did all kinds of uh exercises and and put them through the paces and nice. taught them to not run 10 miles on the first day of, of boot camp and things like that and uh <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a whole different world especially special operations um they're so dialed and they're so focused and they're so willing to to put themselves through anything because they understand the the nature of the job and the necessity of them being uh at the highest level possible so uh it's it's almost like coaching junior athletes or highly motivated people where you're, you're pulling them back a lot of times and, and teaching them the value of the appropriate prescription in order to continue to move forward, uh, with the long game in mind. Cool. Very cool. So yeah, you're actually like very, very experienced on that front. What, um, I guess the next one's a fun one. Basically every athlete, um, that, that I'm sure you coach and that I coach are, you know, you have these kind of key characteristics that kind of come to mind that define them. So I'm curious then what describes or what you believe is the characteristics that describe Brad. I think competitor comes to mind, you know, um, 
I don't know very many people who would just dive into the RGT Racing League, having not done a whole lot of indoor racing or that kind of intensity. Um, and then immediately basically be at the top of their category, say, I'm too strong for this category. I need to upgrade and just put themselves through the ringer to compete. Um, Brad was the cat three overall champion and, uh, was yeah, within, within the category limits, um, of power and everything all year, but was just a grinder and a competitor and was willing to gut it out and had some really fantastic, exciting wins. Um, during those RGT races and, you know, we're all kind of huddled around the computers, watching all the races finish. And you're just like, you see Brad just like smoke everybody in the finish. And you're just like excitedly texting him like, Oh my God, it was amazing. Like so fun to watch. <laughs> um, and then he immediately transitions and says, you know, I now have this fitness that I've gained over the winter. How do I use it to, to better my organization? Purple heart homes. Um, he transitioned immediately into training for this tiny home 200. Um, and is very focused on take that hill in the fall and things like that. And it just seems like he's very motivated by opportunities to compete and um, use that fitness that he's gained through that for, you know, altruistic causes. Um, Brad, what do you think about those characteristics? Do you feel like they define you pretty well? I, I don't know, man. That, that's uh, fairly humbling <laughs> to, uh, uh, to listen to, but um yeah, I like competing, man. I, um, you know, you know what they say to, you know, what do you call two two folks riding a bike? It's it's a race, you know. And so, <laughs> um, yeah. And so, I mean, whether it's whether it's on RGT or Great whether quote. it's riding with my friends here, man, we're we're racing for stop ahead signs, and you know, I mean, it's always a race, and and so, uh, um, I guess you know, the one thing I realized this year, I, I don't. So last summer. I, I got I got hit by a car uh, with my friend Brian. Um, we were struck. Um, hit it was a hit and run accident. Uh, it's not an accident, right? It's a hit and run incident. Uh, we were struck from behind. We were training for take that hill. Um, the the car was going 50 miles an hour and hit us both from behind at 5:30 in the morning. There was no one on the road, and we were fully illuminated with you know a thousand lumens of flashing red lights. And, um, and, you know, at, at that point, you know, after, and, and it, it was a miracle and, and I attribute to, you know, uh, God's goodness, uh, for saving us from, from either death or permanent injury, maybe three inches to the right, we're, we're both dead. Um, and, um, and, to, and to be able to, to be able to, I, I guess what happened was, is I was just became so determined because we had put take that hill on the schedule um, and we were raising funds to help other people. And I became so determined to get back and to ride that thing and to complete it. You know, again, it, you know, when you're in your mid fifties, it's not about, it's not about winning races. It's about finishing and it's about finishing well. And, um, you know, just the, the setback and the, and the, the trauma of being, you know, hit by a car and then having the guy drive off, you know, and just you're just watching a guy drive off after he hits you in the middle of the night or, you know, the early morning. Um, I don't know what it did to me. It did something to me. Um, it, it surely did something to me. It, it made me more determined. Um, they ended up catching the guy. Um, we had some friends in law enforcement that Good. went above and beyond. And they had, 
they ended up catching a guy later on and he's, he's going to trial and um, he's going to be convicted of felony hit and run uh, once the trial goes by. But, uh, um, but just that, that experience of, of being hit. Um, I mean, I, I guess, I guess I had a friend of mine tell me tonight, he said, Hey man, every day, you may not be the best at everything, but man, you better get better every day. Right. And that, that's kind of where I'm at. I just want to get better. You know, I don't, I don't have to be the best, but I just want to get better. I mean, it's to me, I think that is a win. I think what you just described is a win just because you're not crossing a finish line with your arms raised doesn't make mean that's the only way of winning. Um, so yeah, I think it doesn't hurt to cross your finish line. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't, it ready. doesn't hurt, but yeah. it doesn't hurt. I've heard, I've yeah, seen, I- <laughs> I've seen plenty of people, you know, sprint for a sign and, and raise their arms. So you can always do that too. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Man. I'm, I've got a friend of mine. We, I got a friend of mine, Scott, when he, when he takes a stop ahead sign, uh, he pulls out, he pulls out the virtual pistols. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, and then holsters them and then, and then holsters them in front. It's fantastic. That's man. amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. It's fantastic. Uh, okay. Well, um, you know, Brad, I'm, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad that, um, yeah, man. I'm glad yeah. that. Yeah. And I, and I hope that that ends up, you know, I hope that they end up not being on the roads anymore. And I hope that that doesn't happen to anyone else basically. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Um, Zach. So, uh, going back to Brad's characteristics, um, mm-hmm. how do you use that to train him? Well, I think it makes it easy to recognize the kind of coaching style you take with an athlete like that, where it is about finding a balance for them of things that are interesting and intriguing and motivating without allowing every day to become a race. Right. So, um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's always easy to work with somebody who has such, uh, powerful, meaningful kind of goals, um, like, I don't think anyone needs motivation to go out and train for the tiny home 200, right? Like it, it's kind of in them and they understand what they're undertaking. So they are going to get on their bike and, and do their workouts and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think once the summer hits and we're a couple months out from a goal event, uh, like t- take that hill that's happening in October, then we'll, uh, get to pull out some of the tricks and, and send Brad on some KOM hunting missions and things like that, where you're giving them goals that are within the range you want them to hit anyway, but they don't know that, right. They're, they're just thinking they're going to go take this four minute KOM when you're thinking they need to do a four minute view to max effort. So I use that a lot with people who are really motivated by competition and Strava and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm all about um, snatching some KOMs oh, around yeah. here from friends of mine. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it when they get an email from me. Yeah, <laughs> saying, "Uh oh, your KOM has been taken." Do you, do, yeah. Yeah. you send the uh, your buddy a, a picture of uh, pistols? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, nice. and, and and now that daylight savings time is hit the kom snatching is it's in full effect starting oh, it's like on. this week I yeah mean, it's, it's, it's on, on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice um, <laughs> that's great so um 
you know, the, it is interesting to always like see athletes that are so self-motivated. I, I don't, I do want to take a second. Um, and, and, and Brad, if you could, can you define the tiny home, uh, ride for us? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you, we call, I, I, I started calling you know, to get people interested in what you're doing, sometimes you have to do something stupid, right? <laughs> and, and so we, we call them completely stupid, but not utterly, utterly pointless events. And so, um, so the Tiny Home 200 is basically an event that me and two other riders are doing. Um, a friend of mine named Joey Williams and another, and a female friend of mine, named Tina Bickford um, and Tina rode take that hill with us last fall. She's a, she's a absolute monster on the bike and, and she's done numerous um, 200 plus miles. She's an ultra endurance freak and her, you know, Watts per kilogram is off the charts and uh, she's a phenomenal athlete. And we're, we're all, all of us, all three of us are, you know, combined age over a hundred, 150 years old. And so, but so what the event is about is at Take That Hill last year, we met a veteran that wondered what we were doing on the mountain and came down to see us. Um, and, you know, Steve, Steve Vogel and, and Frank and Mallory and Joe all from Project Echelon, they all met this guy. Um, so his name is Bill. He lives up on top of the mountain that we were riding. And um, he came down and asked us what we were doing. And, and I said, hey, we're riding this event to... Uh, to raise some funds to help um, disabled veterans with housing solutions and uh, repairs to their homes. And uh, um, he was very, he was very moved by what we were doing, said it gave him hope uh, for our country. And um, what I found out in the weeks after the event is that Bill was living in a 12 by 16 storage building on top of that mountain by himself. And he'd been living there for the last 25 years. He does not have a kitchen. He does not have a sink. Um, and he's missing a leg and, uh, he lost his leg after he got back from serving in the Navy during the Vietnam conflict. And, um, so, um, he's been living up there for 25 years. Um, he's, he's very humble. He's very quiet about the way he lives. And it took me a month to convince him to accept some help. And so at Purple Heart Homes, we've been in, in, the in the uh, process of developing a tiny home manufacturing um, uh, deal. Uh, we built two of them and, and put them put veterans in South Carolina uh, in two of these tiny homes. One veteran was, was homeless. The other one had lost his home to a tornado down there last spring. And uh, so we thought this was a perfect opportunity to help another veteran. Um, at Purple Heart Homes, we, we, uh, uh, we don't, we're not, um, we don't, we don't qualify people by whether they have a purple heart home or a purple heart or not. Um, we don't care what era they served in or where they served or when they serviced just matters that they served. And, uh, so, um, we decided that, uh, we would approach Bill about building him a tiny home. And he agreed after some coaxing, he didn't want, he didn't want to do it because he felt in his words, he was like, surely someone else deserves this more than me. And it's that type of humility that draws us to people. And so we want him to have a warm, safe, dry place to live or a safe place to call home. And so we've been raising money all winter. These things are not cheap to do. 
Um, it's a 320 square foot stick built home that's built in our facility here in Statesville, North Carolina. And, and uh, then it has to be transported to the veterans property. There has to be a, a foundation built. It's just like any home that you would live in. It's just small. And uh, so um, we're about 75% of the way done with the fundraising and we just needed to have an extra boost. And so I said, well, let's just do something stupid to call attention to this. And, um, you know, a 200 mile ride in one day is just kind of dumb. So, uh, but it's not pointless. So um, <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of where we began uh, doing this thing. So I, I raced online all winter and, and, and now, uh, and now next Saturday, March 27th, we're going to ride 200 miles in a day to, to, to make this thing happen. And so as of right now, we've raised over, I haven't really talked to a whole lot of folks about it. We put it out on social media a little bit, but well, we've raised right at two thousand nice. dollars just for the tiny home 200 and wow. i've got folks that want to you know people can sponsor us per mile you know kind of do that kind of thing but uh, it's been really neat and, and it's going to be a great day you know cool. if i can survive <laughs> <laughs> i bet you will where can they if, if people want to donate to this where can they find the ability to do so yeah yeah that, that's super easy man we have a we have a text to donate deal um you can donate uh by texting P-H-H, that's um, P-H-H, uh, like Purple Heart Homes, to 26989. You can do that. Or you can go to our website, which is phhusa.org, and, and you can get on there and do that. So we've got, a, um, we, we've got ample opportunities for people to donate and, uh, and help us get over the top. And uh, cool. uh, we're really excited about, uh, about what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, Best of luck. Um, I will be Thanks, following along 100%. Um, well, thank you both for joining me. This has been amazing conversation. Brad has been wonderful to get to know you and get to know your story. Um, Zach, he sounds like a pretty awesome athlete. So, yeah. Oh, I'm such a huge fan of Brad and, and all the things that he has going on, both on and off the bike. So, um, yeah, we're, we're new in our, our coach-athlete relationship, but... There's a, there's a lot more to come. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how the tiny home 200 goes and hopefully he's, he's feeling recovered from his, uh, pedal extended, uh, herd fest. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Zach, Zach I got a, a first lesson learned, always consult your coach before yep. you yeah, right. set up on the bike. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Hey, Zach, uh, yeah, man, just Zach, thank you so much for uh for for listening to me and and uh and our conversations um it's been very helpful I, I think just for those folks listening when you when you have a coach it just gives you so it gives you so much confidence uh in what you're doing um to know that on the other end of the phone uh there's somebody that uh, has experience and knows what they're doing and um and then that they can they can help you structure uh a, a path to where you want to get to. And, and, uh, that, that's really what coaching is all about. I coach people. I do a lot of, I coach people through life and it's really, I've, I've never really, you know, it's been a long time since I've had a coach in my life and, and, and it, you know, Zach's a whole lot younger than me, but man, he's really, he's coaching me. It's, it's really been great. And can't thank project echelon enough for, for what, for what they do, not just for me, man, but for hundreds of other veterans that are trying to recover from, from what these um, these wars have done to us, um, and uh, get us back to a, a place of, of productivity in our communities and 
and um, and and uh, in our in our in, and and really for our nation, right? To to undergird what our what our nation needs is is to have strong citizens. So uh, thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thank you. All right, you two. That was that was wonderful, and thank you very much for joining me.